Welcome to the Programming Leadership Podcast, where we help great coders become skilled leaders and build happy, high-performing software teams. Welcome to this episode of Programming Leadership. I'm exceedingly excited to have Johanna Rothman with me today. I'm so happy to be here. I'm. We have not spoken enough in the last few months. That's how I feel. And Johanna is here today, well, first because I like her so much and I always enjoy our conversations, but she has a new set of books that's coming out called Modern Management Made Easy. And Besides just a fabulous title, the first book is called Practical Ways to Manage Yourself. Isn't that intriguing? Johanna, I want to start with this. Most of the time I think about management, it's about managing in an organization or managing a project or a team. But why is it important that we think about managing ourselves? What's really interesting is the way we carry ourselves, the way we live our values, all of these, and I hesitate to call them, these soft, interpersonal, squishy skills. All of that is what matters. That's what matters. So if if we insist on micromanaging people, they cannot grow as as technical people, as humans, as programmers, as testers, as anybody. So we prevent them from actually doing their best work. So one of the things I like to think about management is, how can we stop digging a hole that we fall into? And and I, I have many... This is uh, all three of these books are about stories I have either, either lived or seen. None of these is made up. I really really wish I had made some of these up. But for example, um, the bad manager day, that's that I tell the story of the very worst manager day I ever had. Uh, where I was, I blamed somebody from coming into, who came into work late, and I, um, I micromanaged other people, and I did all kinds of stuff that was not in anybody's interests. So if we don't manage ourselves, we don't actually have the capability of managing other people. Mm, okay, my mind is kind of exploding <laughs> with thought, to be honest, and. Uh, but let's go back. So you mentioned micromanaging. What, is, what does that have to do with managing myself? That's about my relationship with someone else, right? Not my relationship oh, with me. Actually, no, because almost all micromanagement comes from fear that I have not explained the work well, that I will be on the hook for, um, for somebody else. And notice that this is fear out of, out of incongruence. So you are familiar with Jerry's work about bringing Satir's model of congruence into the world. But congruence is when you balance yes. yourself, the other person, and the context. And especially as a first-line manager, a middle manager, or a project manager, if we are worried about, if we are worried that we will get blamed, we are not our full selves because we react in using defensive postures. And if we if we blame other people, which I am exceedingly good at doing, 
I mean, I, I seem to practice this oh, every day. Um, I was taking a shower the other day on the weekend. My husband came, walked into the, into the bathroom and the lights went out. Uh, the first thing I said to him is, why did the lights go out? I didn't ask that question. I said, what did you do? Now, the poor man just walked into the bathroom, right? I go, I went directly to blame. I did not ask a single question. So some of us are exceedingly good at blame. And in fact, in organizations, the organization often reinforces that. You are accountable for, quote, your people's, end of quote, work. And if you're accountable, how can they be responsible? I mean, it's all, the way we talk about responsibility and accountability is all screwed up. So, and and when we manage ourselves, when we are congruent, and even if we just practice our congruence and people realize that we're practicing being more congruent people in the management role, then we, we build trust with the people whom we serve and lead and we, we actually get more stuff done. So it's about, uh, and I, I say several times in the books, you do not have to be perfect. You just have to not be as bad as you were. Well, I want to use bad for me, um, but but not as unpracticed as you were. Now, if we go yeah. to to the example of the lights, I think it's a nice concrete example because m- maybe I'm I need to connect some dots here. What would have been uh, a congruent response, or maybe how do you wish you would have responded as you look back on it? I really wish I'd said, "What happened." That's a much more now, open-ended response. Yeah, yeah, because that allows for lots of things. I might still have been thinking, what did he do? But at least I didn't blame him in the in the nanosecond. Now, right? what had happened? We up how the power flickered. The power flickered. Right. So yeah. afterwards, now it's interesting because as we look back, I'm just gonna maybe this doesn't make any sense, but the one reason you felt that way of, oh, I moved to blame so quickly is because he had not done anything. Well, had he turned uh, the lights out, sometimes it's easier to justify well, our, our jumping to blame. Well, and I have a little history of him turning off the lights when I'm still in the room. I mean, ah, we do have history. a little history here. But he, the, it was a coincidence, and it really was a coincidence. He happened to walk into the bathroom as I was lathering my hair. I, so I noticed, I noticed a flicker of movement and then the lights went out. Now, if he had, if he had actually turned off the lights purposefully and he would never had that, that's not no, something he would no. do, uh, but he would have had to stagger the turning. So if I had just asked what happened, he could have then said, I'm not sure, but the lights are all out. The, the power seems out. to be out. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it will come back on. Right. And then he might have said, do you still have hot water? And then I would have felt a whole lot better because now he's he's concerned for my well-being. My husband is always concerned for my well-being, right? We've been married for years and years. So we are concerned for each other's well-being except when I blame him. This particular um, incident is if we, if I had just gone in with curiosity, 
Or I might have said, I really need help. There's no light in here. He would have said, I will go run out for the flashlight. Right. So I could have gone with curiosity, which is what happened. I could have said, I need help. He would have offered something. I mean, there are people are. There are options. Many, many options aside from blame. When you move to blame, you really, you really sort of uh, truncate those other options. It's hard to go once you've blamed to move to asking for help. The other person sort of once I'm blamed, or once I do some blaming, I'm actually less likely to ask for help, especially if I realize I've incorrectly blamed. Yeah. So it kind of truncates my other opportunities or other other options. Well, and it it truncates the relationship. Right. So it cuts off options now and it cuts off options in the future unless you admit your mistakes. So after we both laughed and he said, I didn't do anything, I then abjectly apologized all day because I was I was totally wrong. (laughs) I mean, I I mean, this was not I mean, it it was not a big hiccup relationship. We've been married for 35 years. We have history. He knows I do this. But I I apologized for the next two days. And it got to the point where he laughed. But I'm sure that I hurt him in the moment. And almost every time we go to blame, we almost always hurt the other person. Isn't it interesting that here we are talking about modern management made easy, such an important topic. And I noticed this, uh, Jerry would do this with me, um, and I know you have too, is there are little micro interactions that have nothing to do with work that once we start to see, we find the lessons are just everywhere and they apply across. Like we, somebody might say, Oh, well, I, I can't get any management lessons from my marriage. I think that's silly. I can get most of them from my marriage and I can get most marriage lessons from work. I mean, they're just interchangeable because I think it's so much about relationships. Well, I think what's really interesting is that if I think back to the managers, and I say this in the second book in Managing Others, if I think back to the great managers I've had, and I've had two or three in my career, I think it, I remember how they made me feel almost. I remember some of what they did, but it was mostly how they made me feel. And they made me feel like a valued contributor, somebody whose, whose opinion they listened to. They might not always agree with me and there might, there might've been good reasons or not so good reasons for that. But I remember how they made me feel. And when we think about, that's why managing ourselves is the first book, because if we can, if we can not do stuff, and I always hesitate to start with a not, right? But if we can not do the stuff that makes people feel badly, now we've yeah. created an environment, a culture where people can really excel. I want to go back and turn the topic back to the micromanager. You said that that starts with someone who's feeling afraid afraid of being blamed, afraid of failure. Yeah, often. I think that from here, like just thinking about it in generalities is fine because people have different reasons. Maybe they do it. Control and manipulation. But let's go with fear. I think that's very common. My son-in-law is afraid of spiders and he cannot help but to be afraid of spiders, at least in his current knowledge of life. And at 25 years old, he is just deathly afraid of spiders. 
I could imagine somebody who's listening who says, well, of course I'm afraid. The last guy got fired. This is a scary place. How do we find other options when all we kind of, the, the, our feelings seem to dictate so much of what we do? How can we start to explore other ways of working? So for me, this is partly about how much can I carve out a piece of the organization I can work with? So if I'm a first line manager, it's probably my team. Right. And maybe it's just developers. Maybe I, even though we're called agile, I don't have access to the testers. Fine. We can talk about that on a different podcast. But if I can carve out the development team and say, my manager is holding my feet to the fire and I am worried that we will not deliver. I need I need to ask your help for working in certain ways and keeping me apprised of your progress. So that's what I need from you. This is the part of the outcome. The outcome is not just finished features or finished work. The outcome is partially what I need to see to see the progress. I need your help to devise my information radiator so we can, I can see this so that my manager can see this so I can stay off your backs. I feel like you're on the verge of admitting that you're afraid of something. Is it okay to admit that to your team? Isn't that a sign of weakness? I don't actually think so. <laughs> I think that admitting you're afraid and admitting you need help is a sign of strength. I think that that's how people actually say, oh, I understand why. Every time you explain the why, uh, I mean, I am one of those people that could go, why, 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 why? Right. So I'm the two-year-old is strong in this one. Um, but I think that a lot of people need to understand the reasons for behavior that might seem strange or or especially vulnerable. But vulnerability, when we show other people our vulnerability, and this is what Brene Brown says in all of her books, that gives them permission to show their vulnerability and for us to collaborate better. Mm, you know, I'm in a situation right now where I have an opportunity and not right now, but, but, uh, in a, in a situation where I see that vulnerability would, uh, is an option I hadn't considered, but I'll be honest, I'm worried about it and maybe it's just me, but if you're listening and you're thinking, wow, like maybe I just don't know how to be vulnerable and it makes only me worried. You're not alone because as I think about it, it makes me stressed out to imagine because of course, what I'm thinking is, what will the other people say? What will they do? Maybe they'll go talk about me. Like, whatever it is, I feel a little bit like I've forgotten to wear pants to work, right? <laughs> well, and, and this trust thing, right? So you're talking about being able to trust the people you serve. That, can I trust the people I ask for help not to gossip about me, not to um, run to my manager? I mean, how can I do that? And I guess, I guess part of it is I don't have a real recipe for that. 
I always say, think about your integrity, think about your values. How would you like to be treated? How can you extend that treatment to the other people with whom you work? And that means for me, I often extend trust before I know that pe- that I can trust people. That's a very scary step, right? I mean, you just, you already said, mm, right? You, you yeah. gave, uh, you guys can't hear, uh, you are, you're only hearing this, but Marcus had that look on his face like, oh, yeah. I know, right? Because I feel the risk. Yeah. There's risk at play, real risk, risk to not just my ego, although that might be the biggest one, but my pocketbook and my fam. I mean, you know, if you get fired from a job or a client or whatever, right, you have, that's a painful thing. So, so there's risk So what's here. the first small step you can take? How little, how little trust can you extend to build on the trust? Right. So you, I'm sure that you've already said, I think, I think I heard this. I've been listening to this podcast. I'm, I'm pretty sure that you had somebody on who said new, the first thing that new managers should do is have one-on-ones with people and understand. Yeah. Understand what their, what their, what their issues are, get to start knowing them as people. As soon as you start those one-on-ones, you are starting to build trust because People will tell you stuff in confidence, and as long as you keep the confidence, now you are trustworthy. Yeah, so it's I it like all that. starts, and you you got to yeah. start small. You're not going to come into work after you've been there for a year and micromanaged, and then say say to people, "Oh, I trust you. Just give me an information radiator." Yeah, right. Yeah, right. But make sure the information yeah. is what I want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. That was sarcastic right. people. So in your wonderful book. <laughs> Make sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. You can't see. Yeah. <laughs> you can't see our faces. Okay. So uh, what is a, um, so we've talked a little bit about this principle of, of micromanaging coming from fear. What if somebody um, wants to begin exploring how to manage themselves better? What, where do we go from here? You've written a whole wonderful book, which I have not fully read. In fact, at this point, I've read the title and the table of contents. So I'm really looking forward to it. But what is the next thing we should be talking about? So I really like to think about the values that I think of when I think it uh, integrity. So I, t- I talked about congruence first and then integrity. Um, and if I let me talk about the five values that I have in the book. And maybe, maybe there are other values that other people think about. But first is honesty. How honest can you be with, with the people you serve? Uh, and notice I'm, I'm talking about serving people, not managing people, that it's a different mindset, um, which, which as far as I'm concerned means you got to Tell people what you want and admit when you're wrong. But you you just have to say this. Um, how can you be fair to people? And sometimes fairness is about helping people leave the organization. I have a story about an ungeller in the book. People who ungel ungeller ungel teams. What? So there are people who gel teams, and we often they might not be the quote best 
excuse me, programmer. They might not be the best, end of quote, tester, but they somehow bring people together and the team is better with them than without them. And often the manager can't figure out what this person does. That person is a jeller, right? They, they help the team gel. Then there are the ungellers, the people who, who kind of tear apart the team and say, oh, it's all about me. It's not about you. So when I think about fairness, a lot of what I think about is not just how can I help people find the right work that suits their needs and the organization's needs, that's, you have to bring in the context, but it's also about how do I help an ungeller leave so I don't have people who are preventing the team from working as a team. The third one is consistency, which is I should be fairly predictable. Now, my husband knows I'm fairly predictable when it comes to blame. So, but the, the right, we can all also laugh at that. And <laughs> as long as I apologize soon, right, not letting it fester, then I'm okay. Um, I will, I am also consistent on having a really strange sense of humor and laughing a lot. So there's, there's a lot of consistency about me that it is, that works for almost everybody, not everybody, but almost, um, taking responsibility. There are, there are times when the manager, even if the manager knows that Timmy or Sally totally screwed up, that's not what you do. What you say is, it's my responsibility for not having taken a look at the information radiators or creating creating an, an, a culture in which people felt free to come to me when things were not happening well, or for not having a collaborative team culture. A lot of the problems we see, or at least I see in, in first-line managers, um, these these tech leads is that people are not collaborating. And if they, I hesitate to use the word just because this is not a just. If they would quote just collaborate, things would be much better off. And that is so difficult. Before we started recording, I, I yes. rented and raved about the incentive structure in organizations. And how incentive sometimes encourages, uh, what do you call it, uncollaboration, discollaboration? Yeah. I'm not sure what well, the op certainly opposite silo is. silo thinking. I, I will do my work and hand it off. And then the fifth one is treating people with respect. Yeah. So not gossiping that people have the capability to do the best job they can. So that's, when I, when I talk about value-based integrity, that's what I mean. I want to take just a moment and thank my sponsor, Get Prime. Get Prime has sponsored the show, not just because they're fantastic people, but because they really believe that leadership in engineering is about people. It's about conversations. And Get Prime is a platform that allows you to have better conversations with people. Yes, it has lots of other benefits. You can probably plan better. You can see metrics about individual performance. But let's just take that one idea about individual performance. Whenever I talk with a Get Prime user, and by the way, lots of my clients are Get Prime users, they always tell me how surprised they were at what was really happening on the team. See, it's really easy for you as a manager to observe generally how people are working. You can look at PRs. You can look at who's assigned what tickets. You as the CEO, PLM, the software engineering manager, you get a notion for what people are doing. 
But there's always these beautiful surprises about who is really performing well and who's secretly struggling. About who's the person that's saving everybody's bacon through fixing a lot of stuff behind the scenes and who is absolutely doing all the PRs. This kind of data lets you move from looking at people as just, well, they're all engineers and they're all kind of doing engineering work to seeing exactly where each one of them is strong and has opportunities to grow. And that's why I love this tool so much. I believe that new and surprising conversations come out of data, that when you can sit down with somebody and start to understand and intuit why things are happening, you're going to create even better quality of exchanges. And by the way, you know here on this show, we talk about the fact that leadership is what keeps people connected to their work and prevents turnover and keeps them motivated. It's about the relationship. I like to say that Get Prime not only lets you build better software, it lets you build a better relationship with your team members. Start a free trial today at GetPrime.com. You know, it seems like, uh, I bet some people here might think they're, I know I do this sometimes, um, you might think, well, I treat everyone with respect, but maybe I'm not the best judge of that. Maybe the other people have a different view of the way I treat them. Could that happen? And how could we get that information? So partially it's about being aware, right? And and self-awareness is is quite difficult. I use the Johari window, which is um, partly, if you've read Jerry Weinberg's um, Weinberg Seashore and Seashore about feedback, yeah. So, yeah, what did you say? So that's, um, the Johari window is in there. Oh, yes, and, uh- yeah, Sometimes what did you say? It's a I think it's just called? asking. Oh, I should I should stop saying just. Um of of asking people, was I did you understand me when I said this? Right? Checking for comprehension. That's kind of the first level. And if you if you um if you think you've done something that might not be quite right, you might ask you might ask people about their reactions to it. So I, I like to go for the first, how can I create an open conversation, an open culture with the people whom I serve? And if if that's not the culture in your organization, you might do um, a survey, right? And make an anonymous survey. Everybody can do this in Google Forms or type forms. You can ask a whole bunch of questions, and I would use a five-point Likert scale, which is um, zero, one is horrible, yep. and five is excellent. And if you're not in the fours and the fives, you do need to have conversations with people. Yeah, I think that, um, and do you, well, since we're talking about surveys, do you have a sense of what what's your preference? Do you have a preference between anonymous responses and named responses? Because I actually hear a lot of managers debating this when they think about surveying their people. If you have a culture that is not particularly congruent, and I will use that word, where people tend to blame other people and there's a lot of micromanagement and not a lot of coaching and feedback going on, I would absolutely use an anonymous survey. I might start with an anonymous survey. So for example, in the ROTI, um, return on time invested method for a meeting. That's a way of, of using stickies to build a histogram of how how valuable this meeting was. So people- Where I'd like to include that in the show notes. That sounds oh, okay. amazing. 
Yeah. Oh, it's in behind closed doors. I put it in create your successful agile project also. So it's really, it's a lovely method of using stickies where people write on a sticky, um, uh, a number from one to five where I felt totally safe and I had, um, well, five would be I felt totally safe and, or this meeting was totally valuable to me, right? It depends on what the question is. And one is, no, not at all. And if you, if you have, if you have a couple things and one is ones and twos, that is a problem for the team to address, right? Because if, if a couple of people in the team are not getting any value out of the meeting, that's that you got to address that in a retrospective. But the first thing you have to do is get the information. You need the data. So if the, if it's not safe to get the data with names, get the data without names. And then as you build trust, now you can ask for data with names. And I could imagine that some, uh, that if we think about the company, that is a very difficult scale to affect change in. So thinking about, you know, if I send out a company-wide survey, it could be anonymous. But if I send a survey to my team, maybe it's safe enough that it could be named because there's only six people and we've worked together for a year. Um, or maybe it doesn't even need to be a survey. It's a conversation or a, an open dialogue. Yeah. So the the container size seems like it matters. Somehow. Oh, I, I I absolutely think the container size matters. And I would start at the team level, and then go out. I would also include my peers. You had that wonderful conversation a while ago with the cohort, the first your the first, first team. team. That yeah, that's a great. That was a great podcast. Thank you for that. I realized that every place I was successful as a manager, I had that cohort. Yeah, and uh, I'm really excited. That by the time this comes out, my interview with Jason Wong, who came up with that idea, um, and the importance of the first team will have been released, and maybe we'll be able to put a, a thought in there on the show notes. But I, I'm going to take the host's uh, prerogative, and I'm going to turn the conversation, because I was just, uh, as I skim through the table of contents here, it dawns on me that one of the challenges that technical managers have is they know how to do the work very, very well. They are oftentimes deeply uh, informed and maybe even built the previous system. And so the, uh, the it's, I, I think in many ways, we think about that as nothing but good, that that's just an advantage. Of course, they know everything so well. But when does that trip us up? when we know so much about the system that our people are working. So it trips us up in several ways. The first is that if if the people on the team don't get a chance to practice, then you are not you are not doing the management, you are still doing the coding. So the team does not have a manager. They don't have somebody to build this trusted relationship with. So you're actually not doing your management job, which is, Ouch. I know, sad. So that's the first way that trips us up. The second way is if you have actually not been in the code for a while, you don't know what it looks like <laughs> anymore. I had I had the opportunity. Um, oh, I think this is, so my very first job out of school, I worked on a telephone switch for the Department of Defense. And somebody, that was in 1977. 
1999, this was it was not a Y2K compliant application. It was not. Shockingly. Yeah. So right. in 1999, somebody called me and said, we actually have not touched your code in 20 years. And I thought, first of all, that's crazy. And secondly, that's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> but and th- I think that must have been great code. Um, I think it <laughs> – so the machines at the time well, were, were yeah. far ahead and yeah. I'm I'm I yeah. was quite surprised they had not touched the code. So what I said to them was I remember talking to my boss at the time about the fact I was using um two bytes as opposed to a year's worth of characters. And I I wrote in assembly language. So that what they were trying to do was move to a higher level language in nineteen ninety nine ninety-eight and ninety-nine in, in advance of two thousand. So they asked me questions about the code, and I said, "You know, I actually don't remember, and I'm pretty sure I don't. I did not remember. Excuse me. Three months after I finished that, I, re- I only remember the year because of the conversation with my boss. Because in '97, in '77, we were already a little bit worried about the year 2000." And I knew that we uh, that our design was not going to be robust. So, um, because of that, that's the only reason I remembered. They asked me questions about this code, and you might say, "Okay, Johanna, that was twenty years." Yeah, but there are people who I know as CTOs and VPs of engineering who ten years ago wrote that code. And they still think that they know what's in the code base. And I I know that they don't know anymore. Not in enough detail. Right. I was just talking with somebody the other day and they th- th- there was a project that hadn't gone well. And their boss said, I know this is not that hard. I worked in Dreamweaver oh, and Cold Fusion on this system 10 years ago. Why is it so complicated now? <sighs> And it's like, I think that's a great example. Uh, the illusion that oftentimes I think engineers carry is that we have a perfect memory. And also, I think maybe there's some bias that we did a really good job back then. And these people today make it harder than it should be. But no, maybe that's I, I just me. I think that a lot of, you know, I, I used to say that we solved all the easy problems back when I was a young engineer. We didn't, I mean, I was working in assembly language. We didn't have multi-threaded processors, right? We had, we had a single line. Everything was linear. Nothing is linear anymore. Everything has, has loops inside loops, multi-threading, parallel processing. All of that makes everything so much more difficult. You know, it's funny because, uh, I mean, I started programming, I was a kid in 82 and I had a VIC 20 and one of my first goals was understand how the machine worked. And I would talk to people at user groups, which were the old version of meetups and, and these user groups, I would run into people who really understood how this little box worked. They really did. But now if we fast forward I challenge anybody here who's listening to give me a reasonable explanation about how their computer works all the way to the hardware level. I bet it's impossible for anyone to understand. Because I was very close to the hardware back in the 70s. I mean, I I was a bit twiddler. 
Right. That's what I did. I understood. I understood registers and accumulators. Exactly. I don't think I would understand that now. I am. I. I was. There was a tweet um, last week or the week before about somebody who had written in an infinite loop, and I remembered. Um, being able on the mini computers I programmed, if I saw the same pattern I had written on the lights on the front of the computer, right? We lights back then. Um, I don't even, I have a power light now. <laughs> I don't have any, uh, any other lights on my computer. Let's turn one more time and pivot our conversation. One of the pressures I hear from managers all the time is the time pressure element. No one has any time. Meetings are just calendars are crazy. How do we get time to think about things? So I I think that this is really important. And especially for managers, stand-ups are not thinking times. I'm not ever a fan of managers doing a stand-up, but it's entirely possible that a stand-up is useful for for management collaboration, that first team kind of collaboration. So I really like to say, if we, if you are in meetings all the time, first see which meetings do you not have to go to? Can you delegate any of those meetings to the people doing the work? And I mean, I mean this delegation in the best sense of the word, not in sloughing off your responsibilities, but in making sure that you are not part of a team that you are not supposed to be a part of. This is sort of like managing Ooh. the multi, the micromanagement business again. I, I had a boss many years ago. I was a tester. Um, the boss also came to the meeting about the requirements for this project. And I said, and I said, I asked him, why, why were you, why are you there? He said to back you up with, with anything. I said, so both of us are at this meeting. Both of us are doing the same thing. Either you don't have to be there or I don't have to be there. And I'm testing. So what would you like to have happen? Yeah, I, I was an impossible employee. Yeah, but so wonderfully <laughs> clear and direct. So and what did they do? I, said, um, I guess you don't need me to back you up, do you? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, and and the other thing is, if you don't, if you have meetings without agendas and without minutes, just give people an, a warning that you're not going to go to those meetings anymore. Those are not; those meetings are not necessary. If you don't have an agenda and you don't have minutes, then there are no action items. Why would you go to a meeting with no action items? So, part of it is getting your schedule back under your control, right? Not under the control of other people and, and make it possible for people to say, um, it's not, it's just not reasonable to have back to back meetings. I actually found, um, uh, reference, uh, uh, several references about sitting, something like sitting is the new heart attack, what, or sitting is the new fat, what, yeah, whatever it is. Yeah, what it, yeah. Yeah. Sitting the is new really fast bad. food or something, so right? Like only, it's bad for you. If you make meetings forty five minutes, not an hour, 
then now you already have a chance to, to take a little walk in between and you have a chance to go to the bathroom and be hydrated and all that stuff. So it's, it's partially about what you can do for yourself, partially about changing the culture just a little bit, um, and partially making sure you're not taking care of other people in some way. Mm. And at that last point, I think is important because I think there is kind of a misinterpretation of servant leadership that smells a little bit like parenting. And I know how you feel about pretending that you're a parent with your team, right? (laughs) Oh, so maybe it's because I'm a short woman, right? But everyone, there, there were people who used to call me the mother and I would say, I'm not your mother. You're yeah. someone's mother, am, but you're I not have, their mother. I am the I am my two daughters' mothers, and if I'm if I'm lucky, my son-in-law will also might think about me that way. Yeah, but that's it. That's it. Wonderful, Johanna. This has been just such a treat to get to talk to you again, and uh, I certainly hope we don't wait till our next podcast to do this. But where can people find you and your your beautiful work online and get the help that you offer? Well, thank you. Everything is on jrothman.com, j-r-o-t-h-m-a-n.com. There are links to my Create an Adaptable Life blog. There's all my books. Uh, everything is there. And your new series, Modern Management Made Easy, is on LeanPub. Are there links there as well? Um, There will be links as soon as we're done recording. And we'll put them in the show notes as well for ease of consumption. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Programming Leadership. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at www.programmingleadership.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.